Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. All this week, we're exploring womanhood. Today, womanhood in popular culture. Through the decades, centuries even, there have been watershed moments when the portrayal of women in pop culture didn't just reflect change, but helped to drive cultural change, or at least conversation. This past summer, one woman loomed very large, making us laugh, cry, sparking conversations and controversy. Her name is Barbie. Hi, 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 Barbie. It's too soon to know if the Barbie movie will have lasting impact, but it certainly gives us a lot to talk about. And we have invited Karen Kudrowski, political science professor and chair of the Carrie Chapman Cat Center at Iowa State University to talk about it. Karen, welcome. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thank you. Well, it is wonderful to have you here. And I know that you have seen and enjoyed the Barbie movie. And as a political science professor, I mean, we are taken right into the the halls of power in Barbie world. So when we enter Barbie world, we find that women are in charge of absolutely Everything. I mean, tell me a little bit about your response to to the the Barbie Supreme Court and the Barbie White House. Uh, yeah. Um, well, you know, it really the Barbie Land was really sort of an inverse reflection of reality. Um, so while we would see that, you know, we have men dominating in positions of power here in the United States and Barbie world, women did everything. So they were on the Supreme Court. There were presidents. They were winning all the Nobel Prizes. And that was just sort of, you know, taken for granted, right, that it was just sort of in in the air, as it were, that this was how the world should be. And that, you know, Barbie expected that it would be that way when she entered the real world and was quite taken aback when she found out that was not the case. Well, when we think about the patriarchy, which becomes obviously a, a big plot point in the movie, um, you know, in, in our culture, in many ways, the Barbie world is sort of the inverse of our culture in the 1950s as, as far as the domestic roles. But as far as power goes, I mean, that that kind of power endured well beyond the 1950s. Yes, absolutely. And and I think still endures today, right? We we have terms in our vocabulary such as trophy wife, um, which would indicate that, you know, a woman's value is still measured by how she um, is seen by men. Right. And we talk, uh, you know, in feminist parlance about the male gaze that, you know, women are supposed to be pretty and attractive and smiling and so forth because that's pleasing to the male gaze. Well, when you put the, you know, the shoe on the other foot, as a matter of fact, you know, we saw that Ken was absolutely decimated when he was not getting the attention that he wanted from Barbie when she just sort of, you know, dismissed him out of hand so that she could go hang out with the girls and have a dance party and things like that. Um, I think there's another sort of interesting parallel, too, when you were talking about the 1950s. 
is that a lot of the the women in the 1950s, you know, might have graduated from high school or even dropped out. They got married very, very young. Um, They may not have spent any time in the workforce. Uh, They certainly didn't necessarily have any skills or work experience that would translate if their marriages fell apart to being able to support their families. Um, And that's exactly what we saw in Ken, right? You know, what did he do for a living? He did beach. Um, And when he showed up in the real world and found out about patriarchy, which excited him very much, he was sort of dismayed that he didn't have the skills to be able to exploit the opportunities that were available to him as a man, right? You know, he didn't have a um, an MD. He didn't have a, you know, an MBA or anything like that. He couldn't even be a lifeguard, right? <laughs> and so, you know, that sort of displaced Ken or just, you know, I think had a lot of parallels to the to the displaced housewives that so feared feminism and the Equal Rights Amendment and, and destructing and, you know, apparently undermining or destroying what they saw as the social contract within their families. Oh, that's very interesting. When we are introduced to these these houses of power, to the Supreme Court, to the White House, that definitely got a big laugh in the theater the, the first time I saw it. But it also, you know, looking at an all-female Supreme Court, it is striking if you spend a little time thinking about the fact that Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman appointed to the U- U.S. Supreme Court, was appointed in 1981. That's not that long ago, is it, Karen? It's not that long ago (laughs) at all. And when you think we've had a couple of hundred men on the Supreme Court, but we've only had three African-Americans and, what, six women altogether um, now uh, with both O'Connor and Ginsburg being deceased. You know, this is relatively recent phenomenon. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was famous for uh, being asked, you know, how many women should we strive to have on the Supreme Court? And she said nine, Uh, you know, because she said for so long, you know, men, you know, we had nine men on the Supreme Court and didn't think anything of it. Right. So why not have nine women on the Supreme Court? Um, as well. So and and that's exactly what we saw in Barbie land and that nobody questioned it. Um, and even Barbie, when she showed up and she saw the, the billboard when she was in the real world, the billboard of, you know, nine attractive women in bikini, she said, oh, there's the Supreme Court, as if a bikini, too, is also a symbol of power rather than the, the modest black robes that we actually see the Supreme Court wearing. So, of course, we're talking about positions of power in the federal government. But, Karen, uh, we also are having conversations right now in Iowa about whether or not gender balance in state government is even important anymore. Yeah. So Iowa is the only state in the nation that requires its public boards and commissions at the state level and at the local levels to be gender balanced. Um, But in the most recent uh, report that has come out recommending changes to the structure of state boards and commissions, that committee has also proposed to eliminate Iowa's gender balance requirement. And if that happens, I am certain that we are going to see backsliding and that we are going to see fewer gender balanced boards and probably fewer women on serving on boards and commissions. 
And it's one real way that, you know, sort of rank and file citizens can participate in government without running for office and everything that that entails. Right. Um, And they're often overlooked, but they're ubiquitous and they really are important. And uh, having, you know, diverse voices that are representative of the communities that they serve um, is a public good and it makes our democracy stronger. Why do you think the Barbie movie struck such a powerful chord right now? I think because it really um, demonstrated in a in a tongue-in-cheek, utterly satire fashion, sort of the the progress and the limits of feminism in the United States. Um, that women have undoubtedly made enormous progress in the workplace and in educational situations, but they are still missing from corporate power, right? They still experience catcalling on the street. Uh, they still have to fight for even token representation in institu- you know, political institutions, um, and that they are confronting and dealing with patriarchy every day. Right. Um, And and so in this case, with the America Ferraro character, you know, it led to her having these thoughts of, you know, existential dread and death and things like that, which then, of course, um, infiltrated into Barbie land. And and in her monologue, uh, she she really encapsulated what some thoughts that a lot of women I know have had over the years. I I didn't hear anything new in that monologue, I will say. No, not at all. And it was actually quite brilliantly written and brilliantly delivered, um, you know, which really captures sort of the, um, you know, the conflicting messages that women are subjected to, right? There's the sort of traditionalist patriarchal expectations of women, which a lot of women, of course, are very comfortable with. And then there's the feminist, you know, expectations. So you need to be, you know, smart, but not too smart. And you need to be tall, but not too tall. And you need to be, you know, have a healthy body, but not be too fat and not be too thin. (laughs) You know, you have to never get old, never be rude, never show off, never be selfish, never fall down, never fail, never show fear never get out of line it's too hard it's too contradictory and nobody gives you a medal or says thank you and it turns out in fact that not only are you doing everything wrong but also everything is your fault so on tomorrow's show you're going to come back and we're going to talk about feminism through the different waves including fourth wave feminism Um, do you think the barbie movie could be a galvanizing moment for fourth wave feminists i think one of the things that it does is that it sort of transcends the the different waves of feminism. And one of the critiques by first and second wave, excuse me, especially second wave feminists who are now, you know, the grandmothers of the fourth gen, you know, fourth wave feminists is that they are they they have this feeling that the younger generation didn't appreciate the barriers that they faced and how hard it was to achieve even, you know, legal equality. And the Barbie movie, I think, through satire, demonstrates kind of what that world was like while also talking about how the world is, right? How American society was 
in the 70s where women were blocked out of everything. And you see that, you know, in in reverse in Barbie land. But then when Barbie travels to the world, real world, you know, she finds out that all of the problems that were raised by feminism have not been solved. Right. <laughs> and um, and so I think then it really, you know, it has been a touch point because it has spoken to the realities of feminists of all ages, you know, from their teens to their 70s. Karen Kodrowski, thank you so much. This was my pleasure. Karen Kodrowski of Iowa State University. This is Talk of Iowa. When I wake up in my own pink world. Support for IPR comes from Hands in Harmony, a therapeutic healthcare facility with a splash of spa and a team of holistic healers to help in the quest for health, harmony, and happiness. Cedar Rapids and Mount Vernon. Classes, massage, and more at myhih.com. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. All this week on Talk of Iowa, we are exploring different aspects of womanhood. Coming up tomorrow, feminism through the waves. But today we're talking about pivotal moments for women in popular culture. And we are not quite done talking about Barbie. IPR assistant producer Maddie Willis went out on the street in Iowa City to ask people how they feel about Barbie. We'll hear those voices, followed by the voices of a couple of Drake University students who didn't like Barbie quite as much. I have seen the Barbie movie. I absolutely loved it. I actually watched it twice and I'm not a movie person so that was a big deal for me. Um, Yeah, I think they're definitely moving in a really progressive direction. That was really good to see. It was a lot of like pushing back against the normative like feminist or no, it was in alignment with the feminist narrative pushing back against like the heteronormative culture that we live in now where like the men are at the top of the world. It's their world. Bread and Barbie world. It was um, a girl's world, which was really nice to see how they articulated that. Oh my God, I saw it. So wait, you're gonna. This is gonna sound tragic, but I saw it. How many times did it in theaters? I think, I think I saw it eight times in theaters, and at this point, I've seen it 15 times. I'm not even kidding. No, changed my life. Absolutely obsessed with the Barbie movie. I mean, it's a serious topic, and it was pretty well. It was pretty well stated in the movie. Women's rights, the dichotomy of women, women's expectations, and how you can never win despite whatever you do. Um, what I liked about Barbie World is that everyone had equal opportunity there, and like it was really freedom to do um, whatever they pleased, whatever was in true alignment with them, without like the different systemic things that like normally prohibit success in all realms. Okay, so I thought it would just be a fun like oh for the girls and the gays movie of the summer. No one told me it was going to be a life-altering experience about <clears throat> what it means to what life and living is all about. Like specifically for women, but even just in general, just what life is all about. I was, I cried so many times. I've cried every time I see that movie, every time. First, we have to consider like, who was this movie made for? Because I did not feel like it was made for me at the end of it, even though the story it was telling was supposed to be a universal one of all women. But a lot of times when people say something is universal, it just means that it's centered around whiteness and it fits the status quo. Because whiteness is seen as transparency, as if being white means your race will not affect you. But womanhood itself 
does not exist without race being directly connected to it. And as a Pakistani American woman, this movie did not tell my story. And it didn't tell the story of my friends either, who are women of color as well. As a marker for feminism, Barbie could be just that. 50 years ago, feminism now is so much more. We aren't Barbies anymore. We are so much more than that. And the idea of having an ordinary Barbie to be a representation of all women kind of goes against the point of feminism. Okay, some very different takes on Barbie from some people on the street in Iowa City and a couple of Drake University students. And with me to talk about pivotal moments for women in popular culture, Barbie, and so much more, Faber McAllister, Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Media Studies and Director of the Cowles Speaking Center at Drake University. They're also an editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Gender and Communication. Faber, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Sarah Purcell is also with us, Chair of Digital Studies and L.F. Parker Professor of History at Grinnell College. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Charity. And Manakshi Gigi Durham is here, Professor in Journalism and Mass Communication and Gender, Women's, and Sexuality Studies at the University of Iowa. Gigi, welcome. Thanks for having me, Charity. It is wonderful to have all of you here. And Barbie, whether you loved it or didn't love it, Barbie got a lot of people talking this summer. It broke a lot of box office records. It's about to inspire a lot of Halloween costumes. Um, Sarah, (laughs) let's start with you. Does this feel like a significant moment for women in popular culture? Uh, Sure. I think it's pretty significant in that the female director, co-director, was highlighted. Um, It was definitely seen as um, a film that Greta Gerwig, the star, produced and moved forward. And um, to have a woman-directed, woman-centered movie be so financially successful, especially globally, as well as in the United States, um, all of those things surprised people. And so I think even in addition to the content, which has obvious resonance and a lot of pink fun, the the actual success of the movie probably shows that it's some kind of popular cultural moment, even though we don't know the full consequences that yet. Right. And in favor, the students' voices we heard, uh, which were quite critical of the movie Barbie, mm-hmm. those were your students. So That's correct. clearly not everyone felt represented by the Barbie movie. Well, and I think that those students are also trying to quickly provide a bit of a counterpoint to the broad celebration of Barbie. Um, mixed feelings about media representations are are common. There are wonderful things about Barbie to celebrate. We do see men making fun of masculinity in a way that is funny and interesting and could bring more people into conversation. We do see other Barbies, even though the you know their sidekicks and the main Barbie is still featured. We do see, and I think my students appreciate that moment in the film when um, Barbie explicitly rejects the idea of being a white savior. Um, and we see a critique of body image ideals that are impossible for, you know, any gender. Um, but y- the conversations across generations that you mentioned are so important because my mom loved this movie, which surprised me. My kids liked this movie. And my students bring different um, perspectives to the table. So those conversations, I learned so much. I'm really proud of my students for being able to speak up 
and share their experience of the film because we learn so much from those conversations about how audiences that are diverse and active in meaning making make different kinds of meanings and have different reactions to pop culture representations. And Gigi Faber just mentioned the critique of body image issues Mm -hmm. with Barbie, which of course is something that we've heard about with Barbie for a really long time. You didn't feel like that went far enough. I didn't, yeah. I mean, there was, first of all, I want to say, I'm not a hater, and I agree with so many points that Faber just made. Um, I enjoyed the movie, and its box office success is phenomenal, and there were lots of really, um, you know, pointed and clever, um, you know, critiques of patriarchy in the movie. But I do think the elephant in the living room was body image. Um, one of the the, uh, the places that the, the Barbie movie failed feminism, as it were, um, was the fact that all the Supreme Court justices still had the cheerleader body. You know, they were still young. They were still slender. They were still voluptuous. Um, You know, all the Barbies that were centered in the movie, the Nobel Prize winners, whatever, they all still had that Barbie body. There were very, very few, like every once in a while, a sort of, if you will, plus-size Barbie sort of entered the screen and left it. But, you know, there was really no focus on that problem, which, you know, which is so central to feminist critique, this impossible idealized Barbie body that is still the standard. Yeah. And why, why do you think it resonated on the on the plus side? Why do you think it resonated so strongly with so many people? Yeah, that's really interesting. And I do think, you know, a big part of it was just recognizing, um, you know, the everyday struggles that women have, the fact that women still don't hold power in society, the fact that, um, you know, when, when Barbie enters the real world, you know, the Barbie body is objectified where else it's normal in Barbie land, right? right? I mean, there's there's a lot to like about this movie, and it does cross generations, as people have pointed out. Um, there does seem to be something in it for everyone. The other sort of lack I see is one of the points that one of the students made, which is that um, even though it's sort of diverse in a token way, it's not significantly diverse in terms of centering women of color. So, yeah. Well, and... <laughs> Faber, I also know that you uh, took a little bit of issue with a line that really grated on me, um, and that was when the Ruth Handler character, the the inventor of Barbie, said, you know, women stand still so their daughters can look back and see yeah. how far they've come. <laughs> yeah, that was the low point of the movie for me. Um, yeah, I mean, Alan is a high point for me personally, but um, <laughs> that was a low point. And I think that the film has a real mixed message on how it feels about mothering. Um, we have several other films that, you know, mother's sense of being unsatisfied is destroying the universe. Um, and we're going to talk about that. In yeah, a few it is. Yeah. It is. It is mother's fault here too. Mm-hmm. We get that pretty radical 2001 <laughs> redo at the opening, which must be pretty hard. I can imagine it was hard for my mom to watch girls smashing up baby dolls because playing mom gets old. It's boring. Um, with Midge, pregnancy is is gross and weird, and we don't want to see it. Um, but yet there is a strong, you know, the mother-daughter relationship is really central to the emotional um, resonance of the film. And then we get that mothers must stand still. And I think that that feeds into the kind of intergenerational trauma that rigid gender roles can contribute to. And that idea that if you are mommy, that is all you are, um, is a problem. 
Well, I do want to move on from Barbie because we have so much more to talk about today as we're talking about pivotal moments for women in popular culture. And Sarah, I want to ask you, um, you know, we know that pop culture is incredibly powerful. It's a giant economic driver. It's something that we spend a lot of our time engaged with. Um, But it can also be a powerful part of social movements. Can you give me a couple of historical examples of, of moments when pop culture seems to have driven change or public opinion? Absolutely. Um, it really, that, that process goes all the way back to the creation of what we would recognize as popular culture with a commercialized aspect and a lot of interaction with audiences, but also um, the creation of whole industries to make popular culture. It goes all the way back to the end of the 18th and even in the 19th century, um, where popular culture did sometimes engage with social movements and allow people to make calls for social change. Um, Even something like the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin, um, which spread the social movement of abolitionism to a much wider, more popular audience. Now, albeit in a uh, sort of uh, mediated form, which was not the most radical form, but it it reached a lot of people who might not have gotten that message. Um, And it was given a lot of credit for changing um, white people's minds about Um, the institution of slavery. And it also um, took a lot of different forms. It spawned stage plays and other kinds of popular culture, visual images, lots of things people could buy and buy tickets to um, that made them sort of vote with their wallets. And that's something that's familiar. um, And that was written by a woman, Harriet Beecher Stowe, who was really connecting um, to the movement of abolitionism. And she she um, she made a big, huge impact on people, even though we would look back now and see that most of the content of that is extremely dated and was quite racist. Um, but it still energized a lot of people for the movement against slavery. Right. Very, very few of the um, pop culture references we're going to make refer to things that are perfect. But yeah, <laughs> but maybe powerful um, isn't always perfect. Uh, Gigi, are there any other historical moments that you want to add moments in popular culture that you feel really did drive cultural change? Um, I think there's so many, it's really hard to come up with just a, a small list. Um, uh, in my, you know, I'm going to talk today about the impact of um, music, popular music mm-hmm. on social change. And, you know, I think there's, you know, people tend to think of, uh, you know, the, the idea that music's played a role in social change as a male bastion, right? They think about Bob Dylan and the v- Vietnam War or CSNY with Ohio or, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival with Fortunate Son. And these are all U.S.-based examples. But um, there were a lot of women also involved in producing music that, you know, made strong social points and mobilized social justice in various ways. You know, for example, Joan Baez, you know, with her protest songs. And um, I think there's also a long tradition of women of color who've done that, like Billie Holiday with Strange Fruit, Nina Simone with Mississippi Goddamn, you know, Buffy St. Marie. So so I do think, you know, women's popular music has really contributed to social change. And you brought a couple of examples with you today that we'll talk about more in a Mm -hmm. moment. But I I think that pop culture, because it is pop culture, is something that a lot of people maybe don't take seriously. Why should we take it seriously, Gigi? Well, first of all, because it's so, um, you know, pervasive in our culture, right? I mean, everyone is exposed to popular culture one way or another. And so there are very broad audiences for popular culture. Um, It's accessible to a great many people. You know, these same sorts of points may be made in arcane scholarly journals or in, you know, 
you know, books that, that are meant for scholarly audiences, but they're, those are not easily accessible to most people. You know, the, just the jargon alone would put most people off. So, um, but, I, but I do think, you know, through popular culture, there's a way of um, reaching, you know, such a diverse span of people in, through different platforms and in different ways, and people connect to it differently, as has been pointed out. And some of this work does, you know, spark conversations across generations, you know, across other types of differences across race, you know, so, so it, it, it's really, it, it, popular culture has a tremendous impact on our society overall. And you have all brought examples of moments in popular culture, and we're going to talk about them now and, mm-hmm. and through the next 20 minutes or so. Um, I do want to start, Sarah, with one that you brought, which is the movie Nine to Five. And let's start by just <laughs> listening to this moment between the Dolly Parton character, who was a secretary at the company, and, and her boss. So you've been telling everybody I'm sleeping with you, huh? No. Well, that explains it. That's why these people treat me like some dime store no, bluesy. No, they think not. I'm screwing the boss. That's not it at all. Oh, and you just love it, don't you? It gives you some sort of cheap thrill, like knocking over pencils and picking sure, up papers. Now, let's don't get excited. Get your scummy hands off of me. Look, I've been straight with you from the first day I got here, and I put up with all your pinching and staring and chasing me around the desk because I need this job, but this is the last straw. All right, now wait, let's, let's, let's just sit down. Look, I got a gun out there in my purse, and up to now I've been forgiven and forgetting because of the way I was brought up, but I'll tell you one thing. If you ever say another word about me or make another indecent proposal, I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Don't think I can't do it. Nine to Five came out in 1980. Sarah, why did you pick Nine to Five? Well, I picked Nine to Five because, well, for one thing, I mean, who can argue with Dolly Parton as a popular <laughs> cultural force? You can right. hear it in that clip. But, um, but it, in 1980, it was a really um, uh, both broadly satirical and very funny and fantastical, but also a significant movie and pretty radical in some ways that were not entirely apparent, maybe because of the comedy in 1980. It built, um, Jane Fonda actually proposed the film. Um, The film stars Jane Fonda, Dolly Parton, and Lily Tomlin as a kind of trio of office workers. And Jane Fonda proposed it um, because she had done some work with um, labor organizers in um, uh, in the office workers, women office workers, who described themselves as the nine to five movement, and they had been organizing starting in Boston and then across the country to fight sexual harassment, such as we heard there in the right. clip. And and Sarah, her- we're going to talk more about it in a moment. Yeah, <laughs> we are going to take oh, a short sorry. break. No, that's great. We're talking about pivotal moments for women in popular culture this hour. More coming up in a moment. I'm talking with Sarah Purcell, Chair of Digital Studies and Elif Parker, Professor of History at Grinnell College, Minakshi Gigi Durham, Professor of Journalism and Mass Communication and Gender Studies at the University of Iowa, and Faber McAllister, Associate Professor of Rhetoric and Media Studies at Drake University. More in a moment. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. 
It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. All this week on the show, we are exploring different aspects of womanhood. And today we're talking about pivotal moments for women in popular culture. With me to do just that, Manakshi Gigi Durham, professor in journalism and mass communication and gender, women's and sexuality studies at the University of Iowa. Faber McAllister, associate professor of rhetoric and media studies and director of Cowell's Speaking Center at Drake University. They're also an editor of the Rutledge Handbook of Gender and Communication. And and Sarah Purcell, Chair of Digital Studies and L.F. Parker Professor of History at Grinnell College. And Sarah, I got you started on 9 to 5 and then I had to cut you off. But um, so 9 to 5, the movie, which, of course, was very popular and very funny. And it was inspired by an actual labor movement. And it really tackled a lot of important women's issues, sexual harassment in the workplace, the needs of working mothers, for example. I mean, there was a, a lot going on there. There was. Um, it it, t- it tackled sexual harassment, um, women who had been passed over for promotions um, and favoring of men in managerial positions, um, the need for daycare, um, all kinds of issues. Um, s- harassment and discrimination based on sex had been outlawed um, in the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and organizing such as the 9 to 5 movement had been going on. But in 1980, when 9 to 5, the movie came out, um, that still wasn't really enforced, um, and especially the the um, curb on sexual harassment in the workplace, that didn't really get defined um, until really the 1990s by Supreme Court cases that were following up on this. So the movie came along at a time when um, women in the workplace and office workers were finding their way um, in a new legal landscape that was still taking shape. Um, and, and still really a lot of women experienced the kinds of direct harassment on a day-to-day basis. Probably even more women than experience it now, even though it's still an ongoing problem. And, then, um, and the movie captured that. Right. And Dolly Parton wrote this anthem that is still inspiring people. <laughs> yeah, I think the song actually um, magnified the effect. Um, and the song has probably been longer lasting even than the movie. The song is still used in all kinds of popular culture contexts, um, not just for a kind of um, women's approach, but also kind of to resist the grind of capitalism and the workplace. Uh, Let's move on to our next example. Faber, you chose the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once, which, of course, a very recent movie just came out in 2022. And it featured a very fraught mother-daughter relationship, among some other things, a lot of other things going on. Faber, why did you choose this movie? Well, I, you know, there are movies I could have chosen, historical examples or things that were formative in my own um, path through critiquing gender, gender. But I'm in conversation with my students constantly, and I learn so much from how they are experiencing issues of representation in popular culture. And so I think this film is fascinating. It has several points of contact with Barbie in that, you know, it's it's a mother sort of destroying the universe with her unhappiness. It has a 2001 remake scene also, uh, and it shows the main character as a kind of reluctant agent of social change. They both get put in the position where they're asked, you know, take the high heel or the Birkenstock. I want the high heel. I want my regular life. Same thing happens in uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Come with me, save the world, or just lie here. I just want to lie here. Um, the kind of <laughs> reluctant. But what's very interesting, and you might think about what my students had to say about Barbie 
is uh, that it's not token representation, and it's not even just a particular set of identities and experiences that are focused on in in the center of the movie, although that's an important part of it. Um, Language, Asian American experience, uh, characters of different ages and positions. But it What's interesting about it is that, you know, we need stories to create a sense of identification and to identify with characters and to experience uh, the worlds that fiction can create. But fiction and narrative almost always have to flatten complex human people into uh, characters and one storyline and one world. And this film refuses to do that. Uh, all the way through, it explores the multiplicity of our experiences, uh, the many different kinds of, of people that we can be, hyphenated experiences with a long, long list. We see casual racism. We also see uh, ageism. We see sexism. We see language discrimination. We do not have all language translated for us. We even have rocks just speaking in subtitles, right? right? Um, sexual issues of sexuality are very upfront in the film instead of a subtext. And it explores intergenerational trauma. And um, that is an important part of the conversations, I think, that we want to have about the work um, and the harms that gender uh, does and also the possibilities. Because you can be, you know, the Wayman who's trying to divorce you or the Wayman who's trying to save you. Your daughter who just needs your acceptance and love and approval is also an agent of chaos and destroyer of worlds. Um, we are these multiplicities, and that's what I love about the film. So uh, we I don't want to run out of time to also talk about another movie that you chose to uh, talk about today, Promising Young Woman, which came out in 2020. And it, it's really an exploration of rape culture. It stars Carrie Mulligan. She is a troubled young woman who is haunted by this traumatic past, and she's trying to figure out to f- how to how to go on with her life and also take vengeance. Um, let's listen to just a moment of her taking some vengeance where she has pretended to be very drunk and gone home with a guy who is clearly set on taking advantage of her. Here they are in the few moments before she reveals that she is indeed not drunk. What are you... It's okay. You're safe. Hey, hey it's okay. You're safe. What are you doing? Oh, God, your body. What are you doing? What are you doing? Wait. It's a moment from the movie Promising Young Woman, which received a lot of critical acclaim, certainly not the same broad appeal as Barbie. And I don't want to run out of time, Faber. So in about a minute, tell me why you felt like this was such a pivotal moment. 
I think it's an important film because, and it's painful to even listen to that scene. And I painful think, to watch, yes. Yeah, I think it indicts gender as a whole system of grooming, grooming abusers, grooming victims. And it illustrates all the forces that make it so impossible to say, what are you doing? Even for actors, you know, who we would think had a lot of power to speak back to someone like Harvey Weinstein. There's so much cultural and social training that um, stands in the way of saying, what are you doing? And the main character has to get to the point I'll disagree with you. I don't think she wants to survive and live. I think she has to reach the point where she's willing to die because Mm -hmm. she has so much survivor guilt. And that's what it takes because she's risking her life every time she says, what are you doing? Right. Faber, thank you so much for for those choices. Uh, Sarah, we're going to move on to Gigi's music in just a moment. But I do want to talk about another moment that you chose in popular culture, which takes us way back in time. Uh, You chose a novel called Charlotte Temple. Tell me briefly about that. Yeah, so it was a novel that came out, um, published by a British woman who had moved to the United States at the end of the 1780s. And it was um, a woman's take on a seduction novel. Um, But what was really amazing was the reception. It became um, one of the first big bestsellers in the United States. American women especially read it at a time when they were denounced for reading novels. Novels were seen as frivolous possibilities popular culture that were sapping women's brains. And women identified with the, the central character who actually had been sexually abused, quite similar maybe, um, even to modern depictions like that film. Um, and it was very popular with um, teen women and also older women and even male readers, but but especially with women, into the 20th century um, to the point that there was actually a grave site in New York City at Trinity Church for the main character, Charlotte Temple, who dies in the book. Um, And it was visited, people brought flowers, people interacted with this character as though she were a real person. And her grave is um, right around the corner from the grave of Alexander Hamilton. And at some times, it was more visited than the grave of Alexander Hamilton, the real Alexander Hamilton, not the pop culture Alexander Hamilton. Fascinating. That is completely fascinating. Charlotte Temple, published in the United States in 1794. And now we're going to jump forward in time. Gigi, I know you want to talk about music. And you've chosen a couple of songs that you want to play. And um, the first one, why don't we go ahead and listen a little bit? And then you can tell us why this feels so important to you. This is Tracy Chapman singing the song Behind the Wall. Last night I heard the screaming Loud voices behind the wall Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Always come late if they come at all. Last night I heard the screaming, loud voices behind the wall. Another sleepless night for me, it won't do no good to call the police. Just a little bit of Tracy Chapman's Behind the Wall, just a harrowing song to listen to. Gigi, why did you choose this song? Well, 
I chose the song, but also the album, um, Tracy Chapman's self-titled album that came out in 1988. And it was a standout for so many reasons. It stayed on my turntable the year it came out. And yes, I bought it on vinyl. Um, so I think this was an incredibly important album because it emerged in a really signal moment. It, it came out during the Reagan-Bush years when trickle-down economics was the overarching financial philosophy, wealth inequities were growing, and social services were being cut back. Um, and Tracy Chapman, her, her songs gave voice to people who didn't have one at the time and perhaps still don't. She spoke from a location as a young, black, working-class lesbian woman. And as you heard, her songs you know, were about really important social issues, domestic violence in this case, in the case of Behind the Wall. She also sang about the grind of minimum wage jobs, you know, of, you know, I'll be working for somebody else until I'm in my grave, you know, about runaways. She was talking about a revolution. So I think right. this this important, this album was incredibly important. And I can imagine that a lot of people probably fell in love with the single that made such a stir from that album, Fast Car, mm -hmm. then bought the album and said, whoa, look at all this. Right. Yeah. So I mean, you mentioned earlier other um, music and popular culture that, that has been incredibly influential. I want to talk about Taylor Swift. You also <laughs> selected a Taylor Swift song for us to listen to. Um, this is just a little bit of Taylor Swift's The Man. I would be complex, I would be cool They'd say I played the field before I found someone to commit to And that would be okay for me to do Every conquest I had made would make me more of a boss to you I'd be a fearless leader, I'd be an alpha type When everyone believes ya What's that like? I'm so sick of running as fast as I can Wondering if I'd get there quicker if I was a man And I'm so sick of them coming at me again Cause if I was a man Then I'd be the man I'd be the man all right, a little bit of Taylor Swift there. Of course, we know that Taylor Swift has basically taken over the world yeah. these days. <laughs> Gigi, uh, right. why did you want to talk about this song? Yeah, so I think Taylor Swift is a very different kind of beacon of social change because on the surface, she's very conventional to, the, to an extreme almost, right? She embodies a conventional sort of femininity. She's young, slender, white, blonde, blue-eyed. She looks pretty much like a Barbie doll. Right. Um, so she's not challenging any dominant discourses there. And her songs are also not breaking a lot of new ground to my ear, not musically. But I'm interested in her because she's capturing the hearts and minds of young women in a way I haven't seen before. Um, my daughter is an avid fan. Catherine's daughter is, <laughs> our producer Catherine Perkins' daughter is, perhaps yours is too, Charity. Um, so, and in fact, my 22-year-old daughter, Maya, who identifies as a feminist and a woman of color, is the reason I thought about Taylor. Um, I'm really interested in the fact that the conversations about her seem to go beyond her celebrity, beyond her publicized, you know, relationships and breakups, beyond her fashion sense or whatever other typical vapid trivia, you know, to haunt right. female celebrities. Um, rather, I'm interested in how young women and other people, too, are recognizing her business sense, you know, um, the way she's strategized to be in charge of her own creative output rather than being taken advantage of like so many other artists have been, how her fans are now familiar with issues like royalty income, master tapes, streaming revenues, you know, and so on. 
these fans, the Swifties, um, they intentionally bought her re-recorded albums to subvert Universal Music's ownership of her masters. One of my PhD students actually did a great paper on this where she quoted Taylor Swift as saying, my hope for the future, not just in the music industry, but in every young girl I meet, is that they all realize their worth and ask for it. Wow. And I, I got to put Beyonce up there with Taylor Swift, just a personal preference, but also an incredibly powerful and influential woman. And I, Gigi, I, we only have about 30 seconds left, but I think that really drives home the fact that at this point in time, feminism is incredibly diverse. It can look like Taylor Swift in a sparkly dress or Beyonce in a bodysuit, but it can look like anyone. Sort of. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm still I'm I'm still you know sort of pondering the ways in which certain uh, you know physical presentations are, are emphasized in in our culture and sure. worldwide. And I think I think the body politics are not as progressive as I would like to see them. You know, even with Taylor Swift, she's still conforming to the physical art. Uh, ideals that allow her the platform that she has. But she's using that platform to affect change from within. The same with Beyonce. So I think there's a big conversation to be had about that. Well, I appreciate all of you. I wish we had more time. Gigi Durham, thank you. And Sarah Purcell, thank you so much. Thank you. And Faber McAllister, thank you. Thanks. This was delightful. All this week on Talk of Iowa, we are exploring womanhood tomorrow feminism through the waves. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News.